Hey, it's Bao, and this is Coffee with Bao. This is a series where I chat with people over coffee who are doing cool stuff in business, music, entertainment, pop culture, and more. And specifically, I like to focus on the topics of their creative process, their cultural identity, and their personal growth. And since it's one of our earlier episodes, I'd really love your feedback on what's working and what could use some work. So let's meet our guest today. So I'm here today with a fellow Asian American immigrant, a serial entrepreneur, and a podcaster, and of course, a very creative thinker. He's recently earned his MBA from UC Berkeley Haas School of Business and went straight into building two new businesses, all based around storytelling and podcasting, alumni.fm and voice.fm. Here is my friend, collaborator, and mentor, Sean Lee. Ah, Sean. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> pal. <laughs> hey, cheers. Do you have your beverage today? I got my coffee with Bao. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining me, Sean, from the suburbs. Um, Sean is my former neighbor from downtown LA, and now he's in the burbs of Irvine, California. Mm-hmm. You've got a lifestyle change recently with your family and your new um, location. How's it feeling? I mean, getting used to it, uh, you know, dealing with the I shouldn't say dealing with, but you know, <laughs> a 10-month-old baby uh, living in the burbs is is pretty nice with a baby, I'll say, uh, as opposed to downtown. We have a lot more space. You know, I get to just bike around without afraid of getting hit by a car, um, <laughs> things like that. So it's been great. That's fantastic. I'm happy for you um, to get some peace and quiet finally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do miss the ambulance every day. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, um, Sean, we are both first-generation immigrants from Asia, but you come from a small town in China, or it was a small town. Um, could you share a little bit about that journey and why you guys you landed up in the uh, in the Midwest? Yeah, yeah. So we we're from this uh, capital city of uh, Guizhou Province called Guiyang. Comparatively, a small town, a small city in China. I mean, but we still have four million people which is massive. I think it's uh, half the size of Michigan. That's uh, nuts. <laughs> for one city. But uh, it's part of the Southwest region of China uh, next to Sichuan province, which a lot of people know Sichuan from Sichuan food, right? Spicy food. We have similar dialect and cuisine, which bundles us in kind of in that, in that cultural identity. And back in 92, my family um, as a whole, we moved here because my dad was invited here to do his PhD, um, well, first his master's and his PhD in reading and language arts. So my parents are teacher's teachers. They are professors that teach teachers how to teach. And very specifically wow, tongue um, twister. around language. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's a mouthful. But that's, that's how we ended up in Michigan. How was growing up, you know, on the outskirts of not outskirts, but like not in a big city in Michigan I, as, a, I mean, as you're, an immigrant? You're not wrong. It is the outskirts of Detroit or the uh, greater suburbs of Detroit. It's it's funny because when people ask, oh, where you're from, the simplest answer would be Detroit. But, you know, we're 25 miles from Detroit. We're, <laughs> we're not from Detroit. Uh, n- nothing wrong about Detroit, but it's just, it's actually when we say we're from Detroit, true Detroiters actually think we're robbing their identity. <laughs> That's the only reason we're saying that. So uh, growing up is, was really amazing experience for me as an immigrant, I would say. I know a lot of that is attributed to just the fact that we moved to a relatively affluent upper middle class uh, neighborhood and just county, actually, as a whole. Oakland County at one point 
I think in the 90s was the third richest county in the US. And part of that is driven by the fact that all the white collar workers from the automotive industry, GM, Ford, Chrysler, you know, they live in Oakland County where we lived. You know, because of the relative affluence and high levels of education in the community, um, there's at least no discrimination or racism that I experienced growing up. Did people tell you to go back to China at any point? <laughs> I assume no. <laughs> um, no, nobody told me to go back to China. <laughs> That's really funny because um, I'm from Vietnam and not China, but I've had so many people tell me to go back to China. <laughs> <laughs> Your hometown now, you said it's no longer a small town or a small city. It's like gigantic. Um, do you ever miss like how it was? It's uh, that's a great question because I mean, I left at the age of seven and I think I've been away from my hometown for so long now that around age 16, I remember very distinctly, you know, I had pretty much lived in China for seven, eight years, right? I lived in the US for seven, eight years, right? For half and half of my life. Yeah. And I think at that point, I started wondering, you know, what is my cultural and my um, just my overall identity? Am I Chinese? Am I American? Especially around high school. This is kind of when, when you're in high school, a lot of the different schools start coming together because of sports, right? Right. Uh, more actively. And so you're engaging with other school districts. And it was around that time that I think I finally kind of left my bubble of white suburbia and came in contact with uh, neighboring cities that had a higher percentage of uh, Asians. And it was the first time where I kind of discovered my Asian identity of sorts. And wow, that's and so interesting. My, not that I didn't belong, right? But it was just now I was surrounded by all these Asians. <laughs> <laughs> and I started exploring that a little bit more. You got your naturalization fairly recently, like a couple years ago. And yeah, now you're like officially an American, but like, uh, yeah. how do you. 26 years later. <laughs> How do you, as a 30-something person, um, think about your identity now? Part of the reason, you know, I never switched my citizenship, which is a, a rarity, right, for a, an immigrant to come here. Uh, and I held back for, you know, 21 years. <laughs> I think one of the big turning points was obviously the 2016 elections, which I couldn't vote in until uh, I became a citizen in 2018. So this year was my first election. Dude, Hooray. congratulations <laughs> and thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely when I naturalized in 2018, I was uh, I was like, I'm American uh, more than anything. That's so interesting. That's really cool. I, I remember also seeing this Ronald Reagan clip uh, and it really stuck with me. He said that, you know, America is the only country you can go to, live there, right? Assimilate uh, and then call yourself an American. I can't go to Vietnam, live there for 20 years and be like, I'm Vietnamese, even though I might be fluent in the language, right? But I would never call myself Vietnamese. That's right? fascinating. But because American is such a amorphous identity, right? American. It's, uh, it's the only country in the world where you can do that. Yeah. Wow. I never thought of it like that. That's really interesting. Right? Totally. <clears throat> so outskirts of Michigan, then you went to college also in Michigan. And this is where you kind of met up with some friends and started your first business which was an e-commerce business eventually right yeah yeah can you tell us about just that whole like adventure and and what uh compelled you guys to go do that i mean i think entrepreneurship 
has always been a part of me, uh, at least wanting to solve problems. That's what entrepreneurship sure. is to me, is problem solving. It's not about you know building a business, making a buttload of money and living on a beach. Even when I think of success, it's not about how much money we make, it's about how, how many people's problems are we solving. <laughs> the more people's problems we're solving, the better. And so back to your question, after college, it was a very, it was a terrible time to graduate with a finance degree. I went to Michigan State and studied finance and accounting and graduated in 07. People tend to forget that before the subprime mortgage crisis, the auto industry actually yeah. was going bankrupt, right? And so back in 07, you know, we had grammar schools, elementary and middle schools just shutting down left and right because families were just leaving and they didn't have enough students. So they shut down schools, right? Wow. That's crazy. And so it was a terrible time to be in finance. Uh, but at the same time, because I always had a passion for starting businesses, you know, it was what a great time to just go figure something out. And that's really, I think, something that was this serendipitous moment that allowed that to happen. Had the economy been great, right? Had I been able to get a very great finance job, might not have happened. Uh, that, you know, my wow. life story may not have happened this way. And I, I'm telling you all this because. I just graduated my MBA into this downturn. <laughs> so I, I feel like I'm like the harbinger of, uh, of downturns. Just whenever Sean goes to school and graduates, there's going to be a downturn. <laughs> but again, I see it as a huge opportunity, right? I see this as this is the next wave of Airbnbs. Ubers, yeah, dude. Um, so you linked up with Phil, who's a brilliant guy and, and really nice as well. And um, you guys just found a problem to solve. And I, I think that's a really cool story that you should tell. I think when we start in on as entrepreneurs, um, sometimes it's difficult to find your, your niche, right? Either for us in e-commerce, you're trying to find a product niche. Uh, now I'm doing podcasting, I'm trying to find a service niche, right? We ended up looking for pricing niches. It was about finding products that had high margin. This is the first business. Um, we sold automotive accessories that had high margins that were high quality and basically were sitting in a price range where nobody was sitting at. So our competitors were selling products at 40 bucks, for example, just on a super cheap end, making $5 margins. Uh, and then we had competitors sitting at the $300 side, right? Just the OEM stuff, uh, original equipment manufacturer. So nobody was selling anything between one to $200. And so that's what I call a pricing niche. And that's something we thought, why don't we provide as good of a quality as the $400 product, charge people less, but because we're charging a lot more than the $40 guys, we can provide additional services such as, you know, hassle-free returns, just really put the customer first, right? Be customer centric. And when you're customer obsessed, you not only uh, can build a great company, in my opinion, but you start understanding that for that to happen, you have to price it in. <laughs> I want to summarize for the audience what your initial business was with Phil. Um, and that's Xenon Supply Company, an online store where people basically can buy automotive accessories such as headlights. Um, mm -hmm. But your advantage, I guess, was milking the YouTube content. And mm -hmm. I thought yeah. that that was like a really interesting story, how you guys saw that, that need and, and filled it. I mean, this was actually the doing of Phil and Anthony, uh, you know, two of my really close friends to this day. And they basically, they just went out and talked to customers. They went to car meets 
you know, morning coffee or coffee and cars and just ask people, you know, would you buy this product and why, uh, why wouldn't you? Right. But really understand the customer's needs. And one of the biggest gaps was the fact that it's not that people didn't feel that didn't want the products that they didn't feel comfortable installing it themselves. I mean, the process for installing an accessory in a car, let's say a radio, let's say a headlight is practically the same in every single car. <laughs> but because your car is such an expensive investment, people are appreh apprehensive about messing with it. And so what we realize is if we just shoot their car, showing them how to do something on their car, then it clicks for them. And so what we end up doing is going out and just shooting how-to DIY videos do-it-yourself videos on any car that we can get our hands on uh, because everything we we're doing was reversible. So we would even go as far as um, we couldn't get our hands on a popular car just go rent it, install something, and then just revert it. <laughs> That's <laughs> so cool. return the car. Uh, but you know, but you did something similar, right? And yeah. it's not like we, we knew each other uh, when you started Juicy Kids, but I think it's just the fact that you and I were so people-focused. How much of the, your website traffic was coming from these videos uh almost all of it uh 90 man that's crazy the other 10 percent was made up of you know b2b you know dealerships auto shops that's so cool so you guys did that business for quite a while and um eventually you, you ended up having an amicable split in order to i guess for you guys to move on and grow but also mm -hmm. just to save your relationship because the you know being in business with your best friend is pretty hard. Um, well, especially at the age of, you know, 24. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, what was like the, the biggest learning from making that decision to split? Well, for one, you know, we realized that the partnership wasn't exactly uh, constructive and our relationship was deteriorating and we're, we're not just best friends, you know, we're family. And, and so it's, it's like, you know, what really matters, you know, we can always, start another business. There are all, always other things we can work on together. But because we can't figure this stuff out at that point in time, and we are frankly, looking back, we didn't have the right uh, resources or advisors or mentors to help us through it. We figured, you know what, it's probably just easier to buy each other out. So we actually started two businesses. Uh, one was called Xenon Supplies, you mentioned the other was Precision LED. So we kind of sold each other <laughs> the respective businesses <laughs> and uh that way it was like we still have businesses to run right but we're not tied at the hip uh, but the funniest thing was because the businesses were similar we still advised each other it was like we were each yeah. other's board advisors but you know we didn't have to butt heads about anything that's really great so after you guys you know moved past the e-commerce businesses you ventured into a couple of other businesses, including um, Crave Lab, which is a um, co-working space in downtown LA. And can you talk about like why, what was just the, the main purpose? Because I, I know we've had a conversation about it before that it wasn't just like to make money. <laughs> it was definitely not to make money. <laughs> I, I worked out the math and it's one of those things where, you know, we, we had e-commerce business that was, you know, bringing $50,000 a month, right? And here's a co-working space that potentially bring in some money, but it was going to be very difficult because realized that unlike a restaurant, the square footage of a desk, right? Once you rent it out, it's kind of locked. 
It's not like you, you can have turnover on that desk space. Sure, you may have some hot desks right, where people can come and go, but still, it's, it's very hard to manage this membership model. That's why airplanes oversubscribe their seats. That's why gyms oversubscribe their, you know, their memberships is because they, they know half the people may not come. And right. it's just this huge churn that you have to deal with. And so I knew that, you know, that was a, an uphill battle and two, very difficult to, to really make a scalable business that's going to bring in a lot of profits or a lot of impact. What I did think was going to bring an impact for myself and the community was the fact that, you know, we created a space where the community can get together and meet. And that's actually part of the reason how we met, right? I met Brad through Crave Lab. He was looking at a space, uh, a desk there. And then he introduced me to you. And to this day, because of Crave Lab, uh, I had met, I, I've met just so many amazing people in my network. Uh, okay, Sean. So meeting me was way better than making a buttload of money. Hundred uh, well, <laughs> percent. So, so I, I, there's there's another selfish reason as to why I opened up Crave Lab. You know, after at that point, I've been an entrepreneur for about two years. And I just thought my network is just getting smaller and smaller. I'm like working, you know, this is the downside of being an entrepreneur that many people don't talk about. When you work for a big corporation, there's a lot of turnover with people, your teams, or just even movement, right? You might move between teams on projects uh, and have colleagues and peers. As an entrepreneur, you, you really don't. You might join a meetup, <laughs> but there's nothing that's sustainable every day that, that you can interact with people meaningfully. Yeah, totally. And so that's that was the other reason I wanted to open it was, you know, let's build a community and not only support entrepreneurs, but provide a space for me to network with other people. Yeah, that's really great. You recently completed your MBA at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, and I see you're repping the sweatshirt today. <laughs> that's awesome. I got my fake MBA here mug from uh, Anderson's School of Management. Congratulations, by the way, on that Thank you. Uh, this year graduation. And just right away, you're going into two new businesses based on storytelling. Can you tell us about alumni.fm and voice.fm? Yeah. You know, when I was applying to business school, I was looking for a podcast to listen to. But Haas just never had a podcast. And so when I got to school and I was meeting, meeting all these amazing people and students, I thought, you know, this is uh, terribly inefficient that I'm having to do these one-on-one -on -one intros. I thought, why not just capture their story in a podcast and share that? And so that's kind of what I set out to do. And because I had some experience with the DIY how-to videos on YouTube, I, I know how to edit video. You know, I figured how hard could it be to edit audio uh, as a one-man team. And I did that for two years, uh, just as a side passion project, because while I was in the MBA, I made a hard pivot um, into investment banking. I thought, you know, I've always bootstrapped my businesses. If I want to raise money someday, uh, one of the biggest barriers to getting investors that I hear in the entrepreneurial community is that, you know, you have these brilliant creators and makers, right? And, and startup people, but they don't know anything about investments, uh, about financials, how to talk to investors, right. how to speak their language. Right. And, uh, and so after I was done with that, you know, and, I was very intentional about why I want to do it and what I want to get out of it, which was financial modeling and just understanding valuations. I realized, you know, my heart and soul is obviously still in entrepreneurship. And uh, the problem was I didn't know what to do. You know, I just 
had this rewiring in my brain for investment banking, right? You know, I just didn't have a clue, but I knew I wanted to start something. And the last thing, the last thing on my mind was, hey, I'm gonna go start a podcasting business. Because <laughs> it just sounded ridiculous. And even when I thought about it, I thought, you know, what's the business potential? Here I am, if I build a podcast business, probably gonna be a service business. We're gonna provide podcast production services. It, it's exciting. I, I shouldn't downplay it, but it just wasn't exciting enough for me. So people listening don't know what it is yet. Can you pitch us what what alumni.fm is? Yeah, so alumni.fm is basically what I ended up doing for Berkeley Haas, which is building an alumni podcast. And I've built a turnkey, you know, system around podcast production for other universities. So basically going around and helping universities start their alumni podcast so that we can help connect alumni through stories. Yeah, that's a good pitch, dude. <laughs> um, so that's really great. Nine months. <laughs> and I then I figure out the pitch by now. <laughs> totally. Um, and then you've got a concurrent business, which uh, is really amazing and has to deal with more um, technology related stuff. Yeah. Let me uh, actually wrap up the previous thought because I'll link that. To yeah, this. totally. Because I, I ended off saying that I didn't want to build a service business and here I am building a service business, right? But the real thing I'm after is building a content business. You know, all this production I'm doing for other universities, I want to build this content network, kind of like an ESPN of alumni stories. I think that's the best way to frame it. Because I was looking at the alumni space, right? We go to all these amazing universities, U Art Center, you know, me, Michigan State and Berkeley. And we have all this alumni network. How do you access it? How do you discover it? How do you engage it? Uh, annoying right. ass postcards <laughs> that, yeah. for me. Postcards, <laughs> magazines, newsletters. Uh, you know, the most, ex the most exciting things are like the in-person events that they might host once or twice yeah. a year, right? But what's the scale? That's not scalable, right? And so, you know, is it always going to be LinkedIn? Are we always going to be looking at paper resumes, right? In, in 2030? Maybe, I hope not. <laughs> and it just made me wonder, like there's gotta be a richer way to discover and engage your alumni network. And this might be that potential. And so if we're able to build up this library, expansive library of content, then now I'm not building a service, just a service business. I'm not just a production studio. I can become 21st Century Fox, right? I can be the content library owner. I can become Marvel, right? And I think Dang. that's really what inspired me to to look at this business differently than just a service business, which is potentially a five, $10 million business. You have a content business, Gimlet Media, we're talking about, you know, uh, The Ringer, Joe Rogan, right? These are content businesses, brands uh, that are potentially worth hundreds of millions now. So that got me more excited. Going into the second project, the problem with the podcasting space uh, is that it's very difficult to discover and access content with existing podcatchers, as they, as they call it, you know, the Apple podcast player, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever. Just the way to think about how podcast consumption should be done is very outdated because they're basing podcast consumption on radio, which is that radio content is ephemeral content. You listen to it tomorrow, you're not going to listen to it next month, right? Yeah. It's, and it's listening is very passive and it's very passive. Correct. You can only listen, you know, they're still telling you to type in URLs and, you know, and Google search stuff. There's nothing you can click on. You can't inter interact with the audio. 
So those are the two main pain points that we're solving with voice.fm, uh, voice with a Y, V-O-Y-C-E, in that we want to, A, make content much more accessible. So now you go to, say, the One Haas show, right? It's all alumni stories, but you can filter based on industry or interest, let's say entrepreneurship and women, right? So you can have both tags on and listen to all the stories, all the episodes that are related to female entrepreneurs, right? Versus right now, you're just being forced to listen to what's most recent. <laughs> right. It's like you have to literally dig through every episode to find stuff. It's just, it's dumb. And the second thing is the, the access to the content within the episodes, which will also help with discovery and recommendation. But what we're capturing there is, you know, what are the interesting items? Let's say it's a book. Let's say it's a tool. Let's say it's a person or a link that's mentioned in the episode. Why can't we just click through on it? Why do I have to hit rewind, listen to it again, open up my browser, type it in? That's like three steps when you could just... <laughs> click one. <laughs> and so that will hopefully not only make the user experience much better, but it will provide an additional layer of monetization for podcast creators like you and I, which in my, my one of my goals is to, to democratize podcasting, right? Because right now it's just dominated by Joe Rogan, right? It's, it's a winner takes all. If you're not Joe Rogan, you don't make any money. <laughs> and, <laughs> and to me, that's what YouTube was able to do was help democratize that platform for creators. It's not just NBC, ABC, Fox, right? You and I can create a channel, amass 100,000 users and make a decent income off of this. And that's what democratization does. And so that's really what we're after with creating a better podcast platform. So it's a better listener experience and a better creator experience. So what's the end form that voice.fm takes I mean, it's it's right now our first iteration is is an app. The first few iterations will be an app. Will that be the final iteration? I don't know. Because really, the our core value proposition is a layer of data that we're capturing. Uh, not just the metadata, but the meta-metadata, right, in the episodes. And then the, the categorization and organization of shows on an episodic level, not just on a show level. Because right now, categorization is just Tim Ferriss, you know, uh, business or entrepreneurship podcast. That's an entire category for that entire show of 400 episodes. Yeah. Like Joe Rogan's just talk show, whatever it is, you know, uh, social society, entire category for entire some hundreds of episodes. But if we can tag on the episodic level, now you can actually do recommendation cross episodes, you know, and, and that's something that's much needed. So let me translate that into Coffee with Bao. Coffee with yes. Bao currently is under culture and society. And that's the only way you can sort or find it. Um, however, with voice.fm, people are going to be able to go into each episode and see whether it's about a Supreme Court art case artists. or visual oh. art or music or entrepreneurship. And then you're going to also have like that data layer where you, if you recommend a book during our conversation now, people will actually be able to click over to like go check out that book. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Or, or I mentioned voice.fm and you can click through on it. <laughs> That's right. Totally. I can't wait to get my hands on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me neither. That's why I'm sharing this very openly as yeah. an entrepreneur, as a founder, uh, because I, at the end of the day, like, I just want this to be in the hands of people. That's, that's, 
that's my passion is I want this problem solved. If some listener, one of the listeners are, you know, want to, you know, steal the idea in the proverbial term, uh, I don't consider it stealing because an idea is just an idea. Yeah. If they can um, execute it, good on them, right? Yeah. They can <laughs> execute it better than me and faster than me. You know what? Godspeed. I just want to be able to use it. And yeah, I think that I share this because I see many entrepreneurs having this mentality that they, they hoard their ideas, right? Like it's the last great idea they'll ever have in their life, <laughs> which is inaccurate. Because <laughs> yeah. If you're, as I was saying, entrepreneurs are problem solvers. There will always be problems in the world. The moment you create a solution for a problem, it creates a new problem. So it's an endless cycle of just problems in the world that you'll, you'll have the opportunity to solve. That's really great uh, position to take on all that, Sean. I, I totally respect that. And I, I totally agree. Like there's no point in hoarding your ideas. Let's take a little break. Hey friends, not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support the Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks, and see you soon. Let's get back to the show. So um, we've been talking about like working with partners and teams and stuff, and now you know, you're obviously trying to scale this thing and bring in a bigger team and, and work in a more effective way after all of the stuff you've learned at business school. And um, I'm wondering if your perception of like building a team has, has shifted in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely shifted. Prior to the MBA, I just don't think I was equipped with the right mindset, tools, advisors, language to work with people and really collaborate on a partner level, right? And the, the trouble that I've encountered before was that I tended to avoid difficult conversations because I'm just a happy go, you know me, I'm just a happy go lucky guy. Like I will always find the silver lining in a problem. Like literally we could get nuked tomorrow and be like, you know what? Time for a fresh start. That's <laughs> why I love you, Sean. <laughs> but when it comes to partnerships, it's good to, to be positive and forward thinking, but you also need to deal with your problems <laughs> when they come up. And so what I realized, you know, going through the MBA, which helped me a lot was being in an environment that put me around peers, right? Peers that are definitely way smarter than me, way more experienced, you know, in the respective fields and just learning how to work with people and being more patient. I think that's ultimately was my, was my Achilles heel was that although I'm very patient with, um, with people in general, I wasn't very, I'm not very patient with myself. That's something I learned, but I'm also definitely not patient with problems <laughs> and problem solving. But when the problem was with a person and I can't immediately solve it or with anything, I'm just like, you know what, let's just brush this aside. So that's, that's where in an MBA environment, you, you can't just brush it aside. You have an assignment, you have a project, it's due, you got to get it done. You uh -huh. got to work with the people, right? I really had to learn new vernacular to just be able to engage with people that way. And that's the biggest shift. And so now, whenever there's a conflict that arises, 
I have learned to take the time, let's say before a difficult conversation, take half an hour before the conversation, just write things out, write out my feelings, write out my thoughts so that I can be very factual in that engagement. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to, it's not about me being right or wrong. It's about, you know, how do we move forward? Communicating, yeah. Yeah, about communicating clearly and effectively. Actually, that's exactly what it is. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, dude. So that's something that I've I've been learning and so I'm working on actively. That's great. Um, if magically there's someone listening to this or watching this right now, that that is the missing piece to whatever puzzle you're working on. Like, who would that person yeah. be? Definitely uh, always short of technical people. <laughs> Technical people and uh, you know talented designers uh, and UX people like like yourself, but above all, just people who are really passionate about what I'm passionate about. Like if you're passionate about stories and telling stories and helping people or organizations tell stories uh, or building businesses that have impact, you know that's that's really the the common language I speak. That's awesome, dude. Um, so Sean's projects are fairly new and there's nothing visual for me to show like I usually do. But if you are a current or a past student at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business and you've heard the podcast, that's Sean and his team. <laughs> Sean, where can people find you? Yeah, I think the best place is a uh, just there's a vanity URL that Bao inspired me to buy, uh, seanlee.me, just S-E-A-N-L-I dot M-E. And that'll bring you to my LinkedIn. You can connect with me there and, and message me. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I've always been really impressed with the way that you prioritize and balance your life with everything going on between school and business and family. And especially now that you've got a new child, you know, mm. and you've moved to the burbs and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, has that always been something that's been a strong suit for you? Or is that something you actively work to, to attain? I definitely think that's something I have to work hard at uh, every day. You know, just growing up, I was not, I, I don't consider myself very disciplined, but you know, I, everything I say, take that with a grain of salt because I, uh, I realize that I have a very narrow vision and comparison of you know, myself to other people. And I think that's actually just driven by my mother. <laughs> she, she, <always laughs> she was not a tiger mom. You know, I, I was an A and B student. Uh, throughout high school and, and college. And yeah, they were disappointed that I didn't go to Stanford or you know Harvard, but it wasn't the end of the world either. Right. <laughs> you know? And what I find really interesting though is when I say they hold me to a high standard is they hold me to a high standard to myself about doing stuff that matters to me. Doing stuff that you know makes me excited about my day. I don't want to say makes me happy. I think it makes me just feel alive. Right? Yeah. Being true to yourself. And that's something I think that has ultimately carried over into how I look at prioritization. I don't you know, claim to be the most effective, efficient business CEO or leader in the world. I don't wake up at 4 a.m., you know, swim for two hours and you know, eat my oatmeal and then just bang <laughs> out the next 18 hours, right? I, I don't do that. Uh, I'm very much a creative like you. I have my highs and lows i ebb and flow <laughs> like I, I go through these uh these definitely go through these these ups and downs uh, on, on a hourly daily basis but i slowly started to recognize them and i took a class at haas called becoming superhuman the science 
of peak performance and productivity. And what it taught me was that you learn to love yourself and embrace these ups and downs. You don't fight it. You don't say, oh, it's, it's messed up that I'm, I'm so emotional that I have these ups and downs. Everybody has ups and downs, <laughs> right? But you ride the wave. You learn to ride mm. the wave. When you're at a peak emotional you know, state, get shit done. You know, Love get it. the most important stuff that you need to get done, done. And then when you're just drained, you're just like, you don't feel like doing anything. Don't do anything. Just relax. Yeah. Go down rabbit holes. Right. And it's giving yourself that grace. Whereas before I used to fight it. Yeah. I think there's like a, a weird type of pressure that society has um, put on all of yeah. us to, to be you gotta be like, productive. You got to be and producing every hour on the hour. Right. This is not the industrial age. Right. I'm not putting a door on a car like there, there's no quota of doors I got to put on this car. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I think what it is, is that people don't put value on improving your your personal yeah. state. And that is it's the same way that people don't put value on like parents who don't have a job job taking yeah. care of the children or like making yeah. meals and stuff. That is a Correct. lot of work. Right. And so is making yourself time. feel like a decent human being. Like it is. <laughs> that's the same amount it of productivity, is. I think. And I think one of the key things that I took away from that class was that productivity is about intentionality. Those two things go hand in hand. What does it mean to be productive? Does it mean you get a ton of bullshit work done? Is that being productive? <laughs> right? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> that's, that's not productivity. Tim Ferriss says... Being busy without being intentional about what you're doing is the most destructive form of laziness. So being busy is being lazy. <laughs> being intentional is being productive. And so you can, I can be, I can have ADHD as I call it, right? I can go down rabbit holes, but just be intentional about it because how else am I supposed to learn new things and explore, right? That's part of our creative process is just to go down rabbit holes. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what I needed to be doing at this time and accepting that. And I feel productive about it Wow. versus rejecting myself. And so that's one thing. And then the other thing is obviously being intentional about when you do have your peaks and when you're on, just be on and, and focus and, and, and don't respond to emails. Don't go down rabbit holes. Do the stuff that you haven't been wanting to do all day. Just, you know, when you're on, get the shit that you want to get done, done. It's called eating your frog. <laughs> That's amazing, Sean. That's, you know, super on point and extremely relevant for me too. Cause like I'll have moments yeah. and um, like you say, just ride it, right? Or, or milk it yeah. for, what, for what it's worth when oh, it's there. There's one more thing that I've actually been practicing and it helps me a lot with, again, all of this is just personal acceptance and, um, and learning to love yourself for who you are and what you do. And to what I just said about eating your frog, just pick one thing that you want to get done the next day. Just pick one thing and accept yourself if you just finish that one thing. I know that sounds crazy because I have like 16 projects going on and you know, I have like 20 tasks. But if you can just get one important thing done a day for 365 days, let's say 350 some days minus the weekends, that's you're going to make huge strides. And that's, that's one thing that I, I've been living with this quote for a while. I live with a lot of quotes, by the way. <laughs> a lot of proverbs i haven't it takes me like years to internalize one is that that's there's a confucius saying right it's not about how slow you go it's as long as you don't stop uh and then the other thing is from uh bill gates but 
Bill Gates said, you know, people tend to overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. Mm. And I think Tony Robbins adapted to, um, or at least I adapted it to, people tend to overestimate what they can accomplish in one day, but severely underestimate what they can accomplish in a year. And, and so I just find myself being much more happy, feeling much more productive by just doing one important thing a day. I might have six important things, but if I tell myself, just get that one thing done and I even don't do the, the other five, it's okay. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. Thank you for that. Now I, you know, if I keep that in mind, I won't beat my own ass all the time about yeah. not accomplishing the five things. <laughs> <laughs> but if you get the other stuff done, that's just gravy, right? But yeah. at no point in time should you try to expect yourself to finish five things today. So what's one thing you want to level up on in the near future, personal or professional? <laughs> There's so many things that I am constantly learning to improve on a weekly basis. Like every week, I, it's just something new. Last week, it was learning how to swim better. This week, it was learning how to hold my breath better, you know, how to have better breathing technique. These, these are the personal things. And from, from the um, business side, it definitely is how can I prioritize better? So what I was talking about before was getting your priority done. And priority, they said, should be a singular word. It should not be a plural word. So you can't have multiple Ooh, priorities. Yeah. Should be a singular word, but prioritizing your priorities—you <laughs> know—that's that's a different challenge I didn't anticipate, right? And so that's something that I actually just started figuring out the past couple of weeks uh, by talking again to advisors and mentors and friends like you to help me realize, hey, what you need to align your priorities to—at least your laundry list—is to your north star. And if you don't know what your north star is, you need to figure that out first. So, for example, my most recent North Star for my next 90 days, and by the way, we do this in 90-day sprints, right? Uh, my 90-day North Star until the end of January is fully validate the two ideas that I'm working on, the alumni.fm mm. and the voice.fm. Okay, now what are the tasks that are required to make that happen? Do I need to build a website? Probably not. <laughs> I want to build a website, but I don't need that to validate the idea. Do I right. need to go talk to customers? 100%. And so... Now it's cleared all this fog of like all this bullshit stuff that I feel like I need to be doing. I need to be doing financials. I need to be making pitch decks. I need to be, right? There's a million things I can be doing for this business. But only do those things if I'm valid, you know, if I'm first validating the idea. That's the priority. And so now I have crystal clear direction, which I've never understood how leaders had before. Now I understand. That's amazing, <laughs> man. This time flew by. I cannot believe, like, <laughs> I can't believe we're supposed to end this conversation right now because, like, it feels like ten minutes. Um, yeah, it does. <laughs> Sean, thank you so much for making time for for this conversation. I'm sure a lot of people will appreciate your insights and um, your knowledge. Can you uh, reiterate where people can find you um, after yeah. this? Yeah, absolutely. And you can include a link, you know, in the YouTube video or. Uh, the episode, but to set Sean Lee, S-E-A-N-L-I dot me, M-E. Sean Lee dot me. What's up? Sean it's Dunn. catchy. <laughs> Sean's projects are called alumni.fm and voice.fm. Voice is spelled V-O-Y-C-E dot F-M. Yep. Um, Sean, can you stay on the line while I give a little outro and I'll come back and say a proper goodbye to you? Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks everyone Thank for you. listening. Awesome.
Hey everyone, thank you so much for hanging out with us for Coffee with Bao. But I uh, really appreciate you guys if you can leave me some feedback on this episode. Um, just how to improve on this show because I'm just putting stuff out there and I don't know if it's working or not. <laughs> um, so we'll see you next time. If you want to support the show, you can hit me up and buy me a coffee at coffeewithbao.com. And um, we'll see you next time. Thank you from me and Sean Lee. You want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button.